0: Welcome to Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Welcome back to Fraudology. Today, I asked somebody to come back, someone who uh, I really enjoy talking to. I mean, If I'm being honest, we have tried to record this twice now and we keep getting on tangents before I even can press record, Um, but really enjoy nerding out with Sean Kelly, he was for up until you know almost a year ago, uh, was the director of payment and risk operations for Seat Sean joined me uh, previously last year to talk about you know being a merchant and consulting and some other things, and he also you know kind of hinted and alluded that he was working on a project, and I can you now talk a little bit more about what that was. So, but we're going to deep dive into chargebacks today, and I always get excited when I get. To talk with somebody who understands the value and the nuances of chargebacks the way I do. And hopefully, we can help make a few converts too. So, Sean, welcome back to Fraudology.
1: Awesome. Thanks. It's great to be back.
0: We do. Uh, you know, there will sometimes be a month or two go by before we can, you know, have a conversation or whatever. But when we do, there's, I think, there's something about people who have both fraud and payments experience that. It's just the other side of the coin. And so you can talk about both sides and we just dive in and then go, oh, shoot, it's been an hour. <laughs>
1: yeah, yes, it happens all the time.
0: It does. Yes. I mean, it does happen with me, but like it happens with you and I especially because and, and with other you know people that I know that have both payments and fraud experience because well, fraud is so important when you're on the e-commerce side you know, payments are the lifeblood of a business. And so, and there's a whole other side of it that may not have to do with fraud on the surface, but they're all connected.
1: Yeah, very much so. And that's where, yeah, chargebacks are cool because they sit right between the two. They do. Technically it's a payments thing, but obviously fraud is heavily involved. So- yeah, it's a, right. a cool space to be. Yeah,
0: at. yeah, I agree. And um, yeah, so let's. I mean, we'll kind of start there because you know when you were at SeatGeek, you were overseeing payments and and fraud. So, you know, obviously chargebacks were a part of that. Um, and uh, this is probably a very Elementary review for anyone who's listened to the podcast for any length of time. But if you're not an e-commerce merchant, you may not know that when there's you know card not present transactions, when the the credit card literally isn't present in a transaction, it's an old rule from long before the internet even existed uh, that the merchant of record takes the liability of the charge back. So even though the cardholder is calling their bank and saying my card, you know, I, I didn't make this purchase it's the bank is then getting it from the merchant of record back through the chargeback process through their their acquirer and payment processor and so that's why they're so important and you can have you know fraud claims that don't turn into chargebacks but even more likely you can have chargebacks that aren't fraud claims because there are so many different types of chargebacks there are you know, did not recognize there service is not rendered and i mean what do you see as the purpose for that. So, you know, I I have a thought on it, but I want to hear it from you as far as why is it important for there to be the kind of checks and balances so to speak for merchants to be on the hook if someone didn't get the product that they received that they ordered online or over the phone.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting and I think this really came to light during COVID where you know, some companies staffed up, a uh, number of companies staffed down, and all of a sudden there weren't customer support teams in that most heavily affected merchants. And you can't get a hold of anyone for, hey, I didn't get my product. You know, they're legitimate claims. Um, plenty of abuse was escalated during that, and you know we may or may not talk about the impacts of COVID on chargebacks, which were pretty massive and still very much a thing that's here to stay. Um,
0: Especially for companies like SeatGeek that were tickets and travel, and yeah, totally
1: yes. But they, I mean, they they do serve a purpose of helping keep merchants. Leaving those lines of communication open and giving cu- consumers a way to get money back that they're rightfully owed, whether it was fraud or whether it was product not received or, you know, it wasn't what they expected or, you know, the hundred different reasons that are there for a chargeback. So, yeah.
0: No, I agree with that. I mean, as much as chargebacks are a thorn in the side of merchants and there definitely is abuse, there definitely are people who claim, you know, go through the chargeback process and claim they didn't get the item when they did or claim they didn't, you know didn't get to go to the concert when they actually did or fly on the flight or whatever it is um and there are people who say that their card was stolen when you can prove that they were the ones that made the transaction i think it's good to at least you know remember that in the grand scheme of things it's a good thing that they're there because there there would be so many more there'd be so much more distrust in the internet and in card not present transactions if there wasn't the liability on the merchant right it would allow more companies to take your $100 and not ship the product, or even more than that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, and it definitely makes, there's times where, yeah, maybe that's a sketchy merchant, is it real or not? But there's plenty of people in times that I've heard of people, yeah, I'll just charge it back if it's not legit. And you know, they know that they can get their money back. Right. Right. But unfortunately, it puts a, a big onus on the merchant then to deal with that. And as a merchant scales, the volume of chargebacks scales. You know, even if they're a fully upright, trustworthy merchant, they have chargebacks to deal with at some scale. And no matter what, even if it's you know a fraction of a percent, hopefully it's a fraction of a percent, um, and not more than that, or they're really in trouble. Um, but you know, even that small amount, once you get to big scale, it's a lot. And all of a sudden, you, as a large merchant, are dealing with hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands a month um, or more as you get even bigger. So, and all of a sudden then it's like, well, how do you, how do you do that? And so it's interesting because most people outside of the industry that I talk to and tell them what I'm doing and, and what, you know, it turns into this whole big thing of trying to explain the chargeback process. Most people you know, know that they can do this, but they don't understand the full picture of what's happening behind the scenes and the fact that merchants bear the cost of those by default. And that's, you know, it's a lot of work on the merchant side to assemble what you have to do to prove that, no, we actually are the ones owed the money and to do that effectively. Um, And to do that in a way that treats your customers right. Um, And I know that's something you're passionate about. That's very central to kind of what led me to doing what I'm doing now was that piece because that isn't always the case and there aren't very many solutions that give merchants the ability to decide that they want to value their customers more and not just say nope we don't you know we're just going to pretend like we're owed the money on everything right when you're not right and that's that's where, how how can we be smart about this? How can we, you know, ideally you're looking at every single chargeback, handling it the way that you need to handle it, but at scale, mm-hmm. you can't do that. Um, you'd have a thousand person chargeback team that is trying to deal with your hundred thousand chargebacks a month. And, you know, that isn't feasible. And so companies revert to, we're just going to fight everything with a basic approach. And the consumer then ends up being the one that gets screwed in those cases. Company maybe gets a little bit of money back on, you know, some of those, let's say fraud cases that were actually fraud, but for some reason, the issuer chose the merchant on that one. And, you know, there's plenty of times that I've seen, and even for myself where I, I had a credit card stolen on a trip to Mexico. I knew at the time I used it in an ATM. I'm like, this is super sketch. hundred percent. That's exactly where it was stolen. And I tried to open a chargeback for it once it, like one when, when it was used a week or so later and I lost the chargeback as the consumer. And I'm like, what the heck? But it ended up being one of those things where I'm like, how much is it worth it to me to put, like, I know how the system works and I'm still up against enough friction trying to pursuing this that at some point I'm going to give up. Um, If it's, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, it wasn't, it was like, you know, in the low hundreds. But even there, it's like-
0: You didn't get the goods. Like you didn't get whatever it was that
1: was bought. So I wasn't in Mexico when my card was used in Mexico, you know, a week later. And so that's where, you know, there's some of that, like, I get it. I get it from the merchant side. I get it from the consumer side. I get it from mm-hmm. you know, all aspects of it. And so how can we, how can we do it differently?
0: Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, to your point, there's, when you do things with care, when you understand the nuances and the details of chargebacks, you Understand that if you have a blanket approach and you respond to every single chargeback and every single reason code with the exact same thing, you know, that Not only are there going to be those outlying cases where people whose cards really were stolen, and especially these days when the fraudsters have more of the information about the legitimate customer than the legitimate customer half the time, then, you know, when you have those cases, you know, and you have now you have, you know, someone who says my card was stolen and used at merchant A And I thought my bank was going to give me my money back or my bank did give me my money back, but then they didn't. And of course, if the bank has to come back and tell the customer, you lost the charge back, they're blaming the merchant. They're not taking that blame on themselves. So now you get, you know, social media posts and everything else. And it's just a crappy feeling to be like, well, not only was my card, you know, stolen and I was violated that way, but now I'm out the money. Um, But on the flip side as a merchant, you're not winning very many either when you do it that way. Like, you really aren't. The thing about chargebacks, you know, in the representment process specifically, you know, and it is good and important that, you know, Visa, and MasterCard, Amex, and Discover give, and, you know, also PayPal and other, you know, alternative types of payments. And they have their own processes that are different, you know, than the card brands, but similar enough to where the majority of them do give the merchant an opportunity to say, hey, wait a second, like, this, you know, we're going to prove, we're going to disprove the claim, right? So if the reason code is fraud, we're going to disprove that it was fraud. Or if the reason code is services is not rendered, we're going to disprove that, that claim. Um, and it's really important, but the whole process is subjective. Who decides, you know, who wins and who loses and who decides this and that and whatever. It is entirely subjective it's kind of like a judicial process that doesn't have any precedent
1: yep there yeah there's no supreme court there's no 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 higher authority that is is overseeing the adjudication
0: right but they're not gonna say well this one is an automatic loss because of that previous case in you know 2016 no everyone is new and every person that is reviewing it on different sides of the fence have different opinions and different amounts of knowledge. So it's very subjective. It, and I think a lot of people don't understand that. They just think, oh, okay, as long as we say something, we'll get our money back.
1: Yeah, no. And it's it's interesting because part of how we've thought about it and approached it is putting ourselves in the shoes and this is something very familiar to fraud fighters. Is if you've got to put yourself in the shoes of a fraudster, in this case, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the reviewer at the issuer mm-hmm. that is looking at this case. How mm-hmm. do we make it? You know, they're working usually like a three-minute SLA that yep. they have to make a call on this. It's the end of their shift. They're behind. They've got a, even less than three minutes to to get yep. through enough to get their their quota for the hour. You know, how can we? Most easily, most clearly present to someone often not in the U.S., which is important because it's more transactions in the U.S. are disputed than anywhere else.
0: Yes. Right. So you assume that the reviewers are going to be in the U.S., but they aren't. Right.
1: They're usually not. And so, you know, they're not familiar with The merchant that you're working with, they're not familiar with, you know, any of the details. And so you have to lay that out in a way that it's very clear to them um, and can give them the tool to make an accurate assessment. And not just, you know, do the Scantron, mark all the Bs um, and still pass, right? so
0: Right. Well, and I think that that's, you know, so important. So I guess, you know, going back a little bit, what was, you know, when you were overseeing payments and fraud as a merchant, you know, what was your kind of experience with chargebacks while you were there? And, you know, what did you learn about them as a whole from a philosophy or a strategy that you've taken with you now.
1: So chargebacks became a massive issue during COVID um, and working in ticketing when there were no live events for uh, a couple of years and no no sales, so to speak, during those couple years. So there was no fraud happening, but there were a lot of chargebacks happening. And so that required, com- you know, completely changing systems and, and relooking at how you approach everything during that time and even before you know we had worked with a few different chargeback vendors never really impressed with what we were getting never great relationships there um it never felt fully supported and you know with the volume of of chargebacks that we had we should have been a pretty big deal to most of these most of these vendors and it didn't really ever feel like that was the case um and we really wanted a partner and wanted to feel like that that chargeback vendor Was understood our business, understood how to help us do better. And as we went through that process, really started looking at who else is out there, didn't find what we were looking for. And that kind of started the ball rolling with, can we build something ourselves? And it didn't, in that case, make sense there at SeatGeek to build it in-house. But that in my head started kind of that ball rolling of like, what would this look like to build something that would be different and would approach things different and wouldn't require that you have to fight everything and could be more customer centric that from the merchant side could have a strong relationship and partner approach, almost a consultative approach. How, you know, how can we improve our chargeback rate, our win rate, our, you know, have fewer chargebacks, like really take that kind of dig into the times when it makes sense to really do a root cause analysis both, you know, at as much as we can on every chargeback, obviously, you can't do that with everyone, but maybe you can leverage technology to get pretty close to that. Um, And that's where all of a sudden AI is coming into the picture and, you know, kind of realizing that there's a pretty beautiful spot where all these pieces are coming together Mm -hmm. in this point in time, um, and there is a need for it. And so that's kind of the, the synthesis of how it all came to be.
0: Yeah, well, and as someone who has spent the last nine years consulting with, oh, actually, even more than that, because I was consulting with a few companies before I started ChargeLytics, but um, on chargebacks... I know just how little, you know, companies know about chargebacks, right? There's so many intricacies and nuances that, hey, did you know if you just put this verbiage in every one of your templates on this reason code that you'll up your win rate by X percent? Or, hey, did you know that if you have this processor that they like to have their template or their, you know, responses in this order and they like to have it as attachments or they don't like to have it as attachments? Those are things that your processor isn't going to tell you. They should they should be the ones telling you that. Um I wish we lived in a world where it was, "Hey, welcome to this merchant services. Here's how you dispute a chargeback. and this is what we need to see and in what order." Yep. It doesn't happen that way. So, I've definitely, you know, found all that and, you know, created training programs and all of that as well, and, you know, you know this already, but I um, originally ChargeLytics was going to be a chargeback, you know, response platform because I saw a very similar thing that you did uh where a lot of chargeback companies were being run more like collection agencies and just responding, you know, and, and paper pushing, essentially, and not actually winning what they should. I mean, depending on the company and all that, but I mean, within e-commerce, you should be winning over 60% of your chargebacks. Like it, you should be because you have the one thing about e-commerce that people often discount is that we have a lot more information about the person who made the purchase Than we would if they just walked into our store. And so whether they're claiming fraud or whether they're claiming that they didn't get the item, and whether that item was digitally, you know, transferred or physically transferred, you actually do have proof. And there are things that, you know, that the bank will take, based on if you know the rules and regs as well as you and I do, that the bank will take as you know, as evidence, right? They'll take it as evidence of delivery. You don't just need to have a signed sales draft, even if that's what your processor says. No, there's so many other different forms of delivery and you can show that as long as you explain it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think one of the cool opportunities that we have with technology now that didn't exist even a year or two, three years ago is the ability to leverage so much data into these and the ability to learn from every single one, right? Where, you know, all of the things that were true three, four, five years ago, many of those are still true, but there have been changes. The issuers do, you know, do change and adapt over time. And sometimes it feels a little bit like, you know, Google search engine rankings, and there's, there's, there's firms out there that will help you like get to the top ranking, but they're kind of sketched the way that they do it. And then Google figures that out and all of a sudden you're never getting top ranked again because you've used these kind of black hat systems to do it. And you know, there's similarities in chargebacks too, where it's like, yeah, there's ways that you can boost things and you can fight all of your chargebacks 100% across the board <laughs> but at some point there's enough rules that are changing behind the scenes yes. that if you're not adapting and understanding what's changing at every issuer and that's where you know we can learn from every single even if even if we lose a chargeback Okay, let's look at the data. Why did we lose that? If I can look at 3,000 chargebacks that we lost, hopefully out of many, many, many. um, But if I look at all of that data, I can understand what I need to do to make every single response better than the previous one. And so it's it's a system that's constantly getting better. So... Yeah,
0: Yeah. no, I, I agree. It's something that I have a little bit of FOMO of just because, you know, I had a similar idea 10 years ago um, and because I you know, chose the wrong business partner and, and other challenges that I had at the time, but we didn't have AI and technology. It was all things I was remembering because I was in that position, you know, overseeing that for the friendly front Friend process for a major travel agency online. Like, you know, I learned those things like, okay, this type of issuer or this type of card, we should do this this type of you know this reason code we should do that vice versa etc and a lot of it is a whole mindset around you know how you're responding to chargebacks and that's you know so I think if anything that's something that um, I've noticed like the companies working with on the training piece that they've taken away the most and that they've seen the most results on is just that your change in an approach Um, you've brought up a couple times and I'm glad that you have you know there are a few Different myths in chargebacks that I firmly believe are myths. Um, you and I agree on these myths. There was a podcast episode on another podcast actually that was uh, brought to my attention a few months ago, uh, where a chargeback provider said unequivocally that you should be responding to all chargebacks, um, and and you and I deeply disagree with that. So, would you, you know, you've explained a little bit why, but I'll um, pitch that question back to you you know yeah there's a thought of well the more spaghetti we throw at the wall the more will stick but what are some of the reasons why that wouldn't make sense and then how do you know well, which one should i do and which one shouldn't i do
1: yeah so there's a, in from my perspective a few layers to this one simply from the issuer side it's a waste of their time to be fighting everything yeah um and you know if they're looking at how many chargebacks you've gotten they have that data how many of your chargebacks have you fought they have that data um and they can see they know what your win rate is and and if they're looking at your win rate across you fighting 100% of your chargebacks, that's going to be lower than if you're fighting the chargebacks that you should be fighting. And hopefully your win rate then will be higher. And that that has a pretty massive effect. And that's where, you know, it's a, it's a reality that the companies that get on to the warning programs from having too high of chargeback rates, they end up winning fewer chargebacks. And, you know, so it holds true the inverse as well, that the higher your chargeback win rate is the more of them that you're also going to win, right? And so Mm -hmm. all of that plays into it. Um, The wasting of the issuer's time plays into it. But then also, and we talked about this a little bit, but just the treatment of the customer, if you're doing well with fraud detection and prevention, you have a pretty good idea after a transaction happens whether it was fraudulent or not. Mm -hmm. And if you're fighting all of those actual fraud chargebacks, well, what are you doing then? Right. And looking at it, and does that it doesn't make sense from the business standpoint? Like, sure, maybe you'll you'll win a little bit of those a little bit more of those fraud chargebacks, like we were just talking about my experience in Mexico, and people will give up. But that's really not any way to grow a business, right? And it's a terrible experience for customers. And if especially if you're a growing business and you care about your brand, that's a pretty bad way to to get your out there and and have people experience you for the first time i think the hard part is and where so many tools and other platforms that are out there right now they don't have the ability to not fight everything it has to be either okay it's on the merchant to you pick which chargebacks you fight and which ones you don't and you know becomes this very laborious manual process or you fight everything and i think that's why so many default to that And kind of our idea is, let's be intelligent about it and leverage the data that we have. And, you know, we're not going to be perfectly black and white. These are the ones to fight. These are the ones that, you know, not to fight. There's always going to be that kind of middle gray area. And it's the same thing with, you know, any kind of fraud review process, you figure out your of tolerance in there um, but giving merchants the tools to not have to fight everything to be intelligent about it and do that kind of routing and how do we want to handle this do we want to you know accept this and not fight it because the customer is you know, they were not the ones that made this transaction. That's clear to us as a merchant. Let's not fight this. And let's put our resources and time and energy into the ones that we should be fighting.
0: The ones that you have. Yeah, you should be fighting because you have more of a chance of winning them. Right. And I would say one other like fundamental reason why you shouldn't be responding to all of them is that you're over inflating your chargeback fees coming from your processor because you often get another 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, sometimes $30 from your processor for second time chargebacks. Well, if you are responding to things that you have no chance in winning, you're just overinflating that fee from your processor. It used to be long ago that second time chargebacks counted as your chargeback ratio for at least one card brand. So then you were inflating your chances of getting on the monitoring program. Thankfully, you know, that isn't the case anymore, but you do risk you know, your processor's eyes glazing over because they're actually the, you know, the audience first. And then you risk the issue eyes glazing over and going oh these guys respond to everything with garbage and so we're just not gonna we're not gonna look and to your point earlier if they see the same (laughs) i remember when i worked for a payment processor and this was like almost 20 years ago there was a company that isn't around anymore but that they were the first that i know of that was responding to chargebacks on behalf of merchants whenever our chart i sat in the same um like office as our chargeback team we all had you know cube it was like an open office concept before there was an open office concept but like we were all in the same room basically and we just you know so i'd hear all their conversations and they go oh another one from this vendor and it would go in the blue you know the blue filing cabinet which was also known as the recycling bin <laughs> um because they knew that 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 provider didn't know what they were doing and they were just sending 50 pages of paper that just had random stuff on it and they weren't tying it together to tell a story to explain why the merchant shouldn't have had received a chargeback for that. I know I've been promising to tell you more about SPEC and why I invited them to sponsor episodes of Fraudology and there's actually so many things that I want to tell you and will tell you over the next several weeks. But the first thing I want to make sure that you hear about is their Trust Cloud. Specs Trust Cloud protects the integrity of the digital user while simplifying the risk process. It allows you to discover insights across the entire digital user experience. It allows you to catch attacks early. With access to full visibility, you can scan visitor behavior across their entire journey to catch the risk patterns that traditional fraud check APIs miss. Visualize the flow of attacks identifying areas to catch them early, and leaving bad actors with nowhere to hide. It also allows you to start each journey with instant trust. You can boost platform integrity by instantly welcoming return customers to their personal account experience, while your trust platform invisibly screens for signs of compromise and abuse. It also allows you to remove friction for good customers and increase conversions. By using a single source of truth, you can detect evolving fraud attacks and identify conversion drop-offs and optimize your payment strategy. The bottom line is when you're able to to see every customer's behavior from the moment that they enter your website until the time of checkout or when they open up a new account you can identify that before the fake account is made before the transaction is even made and now you've got a fraud transaction in your platform it's honestly game-changing and i'm really excited for more people to learn about it so to learn more about spec and this new technology and especially their spec trust cloud go to www.specprotected.com so you know we're talking about how you know why we think it's important to not respond to every chargeback and i couldn't agree with you more but there's also a subset of online companies that just don't respond to their chargebacks at all Um, they don't even look at them in some cases, or they do look at them just to close an account or, you know, notate an account or whatever, but then they don't do anything beyond that. What are your thoughts on that? Or why do you, why do you think that's good or bad? (laughs)
1: I mean, I, I don't think it's ideal. I think there's two two sides there. One is there's a lot of revenue being left on the table that should rightfully be the companies. And the other side of it is the data that you can get out of that for changes and improvements that you need to make to your product. What What's going on that's driving those in the first place? And if yes. you're not paying attention, if you're not looking, if you're just accepting them, you're probably not getting that valuable insight of Things that you can improve that are going to improve the experience of your customers, that are going to increase the satisfaction of your customers, that are going to lead to less lost revenue. Um, And so certainly, I guess worst case, if you're not going to fight anything, at least make sure you're doing that root cause analysis and understanding it. But you know, I would say there's very few, if any, cases that I've seen that the company shouldn't be recovering some of that revenue that they're owed. That people take advantage of that. Um, You're training your customers that that's their best path. Um, There's, um, I think, I think I remember you talking about a stat around the impact that that has on issuers and that leading to you know they'll they'll jump to a chargeback more quickly if they see that you haven't been fighting chargebacks because that they see that, okay, well, that's a path to make this customer happy. And so it's, you know, they'll take With somebody else's money. (laughs) Yeah. It's not a, it's not a zero sum game. And so that's my thought on that. Um, And again, you know, I think there's ways of being intelligent and what, what do you, what do you fight? And that also means that you do fight some and more importantly, making sure that you understand why they're, happening in the first place so that you can action on that and make improvements to your product, make improvements to your customer support, whatever, is actually driving those.
0: Well, and I think that piece is what has been missing for so long in the chargeback piece is that, um, and it's something that I really have focused on throughout my consulting career is the root cause analysis. There's so much business intelligence that you can get To figure out why are my customers calling their bank and not calling my customer service to demand a refund of some kind, you know, to say that it, it didn't come or it wasn't as described or they were owed a refund and they couldn't find the phone number or they didn't know who charged them because the billing descriptor was wrong. I mean, I've found all kinds of, to me, fun things, you know, from being able to deep dive enough to go, oh, there's like one or two analysts in your customer service that tell somebody they're going to give them a refund and then don't because it's too much work on their end. Or, you know, this one product you're having, you're getting a lot of not as described, like you need to better describe that product on your, on your website. Well, if we do that, nobody's going to buy it. Well, but you're not going to get the chargebacks either. And and that's not usually the case. It's usually actually, usually it's usually, well, you know. Now that I know what I'm buying, I'm more likely to buy it, you know, having a more thorough description of something. But yeah, that's so important to me is and I'm glad it is to you, too, as far as, you know, not just responding and not doing anything about it, but learning about that, looking at what are all the there are all the similarities. What's all the data you can extract out of that those original transactions and how can you improve upstream.
1: Yeah, that's one of the important things to us is really being able to approach it. And like I like I described kind of the what led to the need in my discovery of this need in the first place was I want a partner, I want the vendor that I'm working with to be providing that insight and give me as the fraud team as the risk team as the payments team, whoever I'm representing, give me the data that I need to take Mm -hmm. back to my product team to help improve my own metrics, right? That those are what i and my team are being measured on what can we do to help with that and anything that my vendor that my partner that that who i'm working with is helping me be better and look better and helping us perform better is ultimately you know that that's what's going to win right and rather than just
0: pushing paper every time right
1: yeah so i don't i don't need to hear oh you're doing good you're doing the you know right in the industry norm okay but we can do better right like help me segment down and figure out something that i can focus on something that i can improve um there's always more that can be done
0: well especially when you're talking enterprise right sometimes a fraction of a percent is millions of dollars
1: i mean yeah it can be huge
0: definitely had some pretty awesome successes in that way throughout my career of like You know, nobody really thinks about chargebacks until somebody knows what they're doing and goes, well, wait, let's find out why they're happening and then let's respond to the ones that you're getting. But let's prevent the ones as much as we can so that you're not losing that money for even a short period of time, not to mention the accounting headache that that causes when, you know, because Visa and MasterCard deduct the money ahead of time before you can dispute it. And so there's money back and forth. And it's, you know, it's a mess there. Well, so going back to when you were at SeatGeek and overseeing payments and chargebacks and fraud, um, I know that, you know, there's a lot of companies that choose to dispute in house. And I know that you guys had that option and, you know, looked at it quite extensively why why did you decide that it wasn't worth or was it worth fighting them internally
1: yeah so so in our case it really came down to the fact that i i don't think it makes sense to solve chargebacks with just hiring more humans to help respond to them mm-hmm. I think it especially where we're at in with technology and AI and machine learning there's a tech solution to solving chargebacks mm-hmm. and we weren't a chargeback management company that wasn't our core mission and it didn't make sense to pull engineering resources and product resources away from our, the core mission of our company mm-hmm. and you know to put those resources into chargebacks, I mean there's always a case that can be made and you know weigh what the cost is and and do that analysis but at the end of the day for us that didn't make sense and to truly build a tech forward approach to chargebacks doesn't mean just building it and then you're done with it right especially with something with like chargebacks that are very much evolving every day every every month every year um and so it was something that was going to need to then be maintained and you know you're setting off on that path and so it just for us it really didn't make sense to build that in house mm-hmm. um and that's you know again what kind of push to is there a solution out there there really isn't that does things and thinks about things and approaches things and has the same philosophy nor am i seeing that there's that like strong recommendation from other merchants that are you know are saying oh this is who you need to go talk to they're crushing it we love them you know this is who you need to use and that really was the only kind of vertical in the sta- in the, the fraud and the payment stack that I couldn't find any strong recurring referrals for any providers. And so that's where it was like, okay, there seems to be a need here. And there's an opportunity to do this in a different way than anybody else is doing it.
0: Yeah, well, and I mean, I definitely was vocal, you know, in the industry, I don't know if necessarily on the podcast, but, but definitely in the industry over the last several years that the options out there, I mean, some of them borderline on criminal allegedly, you know, with some of the things that they're doing. I mean,
1: sometimes more than allegedly, like, the (laughs) there's definitely been some cases recently. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. And there's, there's others that some of the things I've I've heard them doing and, and know that they've done is not, it, you know, double billing, triple billing, doing crazy things like that. It's just um, a lot of times they're not created by people who are ever on the merchant side. They just see this opportunity for money. And that said, I mean, you know, this, I, a couple of years ago, I did find a company that, you know, does have Does align with what my core, you know. I always had three questions that I always asked every vendor, chargeback vendor, and none of them could pass it. And this other one could, could it, could pass those? And they do work with some pretty big brands. But that said, you know. Having there be one out of so many, you know, and and they do have a lot of data and use it in a really good way, but I think you know that that there's still a need, even if there's just one out there. So, um, so what? Yeah, no,
1: com- competition's not a bad thing. No, no, I think iron sharpens iron. Certainly not afraid of that, and not you know, I I I want. Competition. I want to to be pushed, and I want to help. You know, it's a rising tide lifts all boats. It's helping everyone. Um, and if coming into this market helps put more of an emphasis on that partnership with clients, or helps put more of an emphasis on the leveraging of AI in a really smart and intelligent way, and helps elevate customers, and you know, pay attention to who you're insulting and you know, puts an emphasis on not fighting everything, all of those things are ultimately good for every, it's good for the issuer. It's good for the merchants. It's good for the customers. Right. I you know, agree. Those are, everybody wins in those cases. So
0: it's better for the ecosystem, right? So, I mean, without further ado, you've obviously hinted towards it, but what are you working on now? Um, You know, we were doing some consulting before and, and then you kind of found what you wanted to do. And um, I'm sure people can put pieces together because my listeners are frog fighters and they're very good at looking at clues. Um, But, you know, what are you working on?
1: So took all of that and starting late last summer, um, found a co-founder to kind of take on the technical and engineering side. And we built uh, Disputed Inc. Disputed.ai is our our website. Um, And we're a chargeback management platform that really is all about taking an intelligent approach to chargebacks and, you know, giving the merchant the ability to decide. And if you're a merchant that thinks that you should and want to fight everything, cool, that should be your decision. We, we don't have a problem giving you the tools to do that. Um, but we also want to give you the tools that you don't have to do that. That we can help intelligently route and make a decision on: is this worth fighting? What's your likelihood of winning it? You know, what's how do we how do we make those decisions? And then really being smart about how we represent that, how we represent that, um, and and fight that and. Let's be smart about that and assemble what is needed for that specific chargeback for that specific dispute. How do we, how do we pull all the right evidence together um, into a package that is again learning from everyone before and constantly improving? Mm. Um, and where I where I see things going and where we're where we've built to is this idea that not increasing more and more templates. And I know we've talked about it. There's some some merchants that don't use templates and take every one, you know, one off. And it's this idea that, you know, there should, there's no two chargebacks that are alike. There's no two merchants that are alike. And let's take every single one. And instead of having a few templates that we're working off of every single dispute has its own template, essentially that is created based on the data available for that um, and representing it in a unique way um, that is going to be most likely to win. And Again, in those cases where it loses, let's learn from that so that we can constantly be improving and not just being smarter about knowing what we're fighting and why we're fighting it and how to win it, Um, but again, pulling in the right data um, to be able to to give and put ourselves and we mentioned this earlier but put ourselves in the shoes of the the agent that's reviewing this on the issuer side to make a decision for who's who's owed well,
0: first it's on the processor side right processor or issuer There's yeah a lot of yes, exactly that don't decide right <laughs> that, 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 that will just say oh we're not going to pass this on to the issuer we don't think it can win and sometimes those are really subjective too so you have two audiences that you have to pass
1: yes Yeah. So let's, let's learn from all of those and, and constantly improve on them and have it always getting better. And it, It goes back to that, that idea of, you know, I really pushed our provider at the time of like, even to the point that I was very point blank and blunt with them of like, I need this from you help us do better. You're telling me that our win rates are industry norm, help me be better than that. Give me 1%, you know, just help me be a little bit better.
0: That's still money on the table. Like, come on, that's funding, you know, or that's, yeah, that doesn't need to be going out. Because of abuse. And
1: knowing what I know now, we weren't crushing it at all. There was so much opportunity to do so much better. Um, and you know, it was in that case where it's like, okay at that point, everything was very template based. So come to those QBRs and give me like, do some of that work and help me understand some of these segments that I can target and help me come up with a better template for that. If that's, if that's what the solution is, cool, let's do that. Uh, But, you know, even with pushing for that, wasn't getting that. And so,
0: well, and let's be clear, templates aren't, I mean, a template isn't only as good as it can be. I have seen some absolutely horrible templates from chargeback companies that I'm like, no wonder your win rate is so low. Um, because a lot of people think like, you know, just responding to it at all, you know, everyone's going to have the same win or loss. And it's like, absolutely not. I mean, I have Clients that started calling my templates magic because, you know, they, I could increase their win rate by, you know, 20, 30, 40%. And it was like, no, I'm just, they're more specific and, and they're giving the agents what they need and telling them, hey, this, this satisfies this and this satisfies that because they only have three minutes and you're just trying to boom, boom, boom. When people, you might give them all the data that they need, but they don't know how to, you know, find it and go, oh, that is sufficient for this and this is sufficient for. That. No, they have no time. And not to mention, a lot of times, you know, there's not a lot of um, encouragement for them to think outside the box. They don't have time to. There's no context, you know, um, there's no time for context. And so you have to really, you know, point blank it. And I mean, just even, I know some. Some vendors have three templates total. And I mean, I would have, for the average merchant when I was doing this service, would have like 15 to 20. You know, it would depend on the reason code, but it would also depend on what's happening within that reason code, right? What actually happened? Was it a situation where the child used the parent's credit card, or was it a situation where the person used their own credit card and it Really wasn't fraud, or is a situation where the issuer chose fraud because it was the easiest reason code to pick and they didn't, you know, do anything else? Because we know that happens a lot too. (laughs) It happens,
1: yeah. And it, but also across every issuer, there's differences, um, across dollar amounts, there's differences, ESPs and processors. There's so many layers. And that's where all of a sudden you can be like, oh, it makes sense to have 100 or 200 or 300 templates. Well, if that's the case, then why not do away with that and have every single one be handled as if it is being responded to the best way that it can. And using technology, we actually can do that now, which is pretty freaking
0: awesome. So it's really cool. So I'm going to throw you a curveball because I'm just curious about this. You know, you've been a merchant for the last like or, you know, for eight or nine years or, you know, for mo oh, Large chunk of your career, and I don't think you've ever really been on the vendor side before. What's that like? I mean, for people who may be considering it, what's the what are the highs and what are the lows? What are the things you've had to adjust to? I think so.
1: Having to all of a sudden now be in the shoes of doing enterprise software sales um, <laughs> for myself at a personal level, it, it has taken a bit of adjustment and kind of this like thinking who who am I to reach out to people and try and talk to them about this. And then I have this kind of awakening moment or have had this awakening moment where it's like, wait a minute, I'm who I wanted to talk to when I was in Mm. that place. Mm -hmm. But because you know, the stuff, yourself, it didn't exist. And so that for me has been a, a very kind of empowering thing and given me kind of that confidence and that platform to go out and be like, Hey, I've been where you are. I needed this. I went worked with a team, we built this. And so I think that for me has been one of the biggest learnings. I love the merchant side and miss it already. And even talking to you and some of the merchant only things, um, it's still kind of sinking in that I'm not on that side anymore. But I I am super excited to be able to provide a solution to merchants to the side that I love um, in a way that is built by a merchant for other merchants and really, really be able to approach things from the way that I think it should be approached. um, And, and to be able to talk to the people that I love being among. So,
0: right. Yeah. And there's definitely some, you know, truth in that where it's like, you know, not all vendors have to be seen as sharks, as long as they don't act like them, right. Or, you know, be, be in that way. I mean, I, it was an adjustment for me, even just as a consultant to start having conversations with people about, you know, like, well, I can help you fix that. And I'm going to need to send you an invoice. Especially because when I worked for the trade association, everyone got so used to just picking up the phone or emailing me and asking me questions. And then it was like, ah, now I need to, you know. But it, I do think that we're at an advantage because we know we know the target market because we are the target market, right? Like, once you're on the merchant side or once you're just a front-fighting practitioner at all, right, whether that's on the banking side or the fintech side or whatever, like, for most people, that that core of who you are doesn't change.
1: Yep. I totally agree with that.
0: And we can sniff each other out pretty quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, and, and and it goes back to the idea that we touched on of putting yourself in other people's shoes. And that's something that we learn and train everyone in the fraud fighting world to do. Again, put yourself in the shoes of the fraudster, put yourself in the shoes of the customer. What's the story? What's happening here? Um, and and really thinking about it that way has been a, a really cool way to approach it and think about it mm-hmm. um, and given us... I think, a, a really cool product.
0: Well, cool, Sean. I mean, I always, you know, when I like, you know, have good conversations with good people and, you know, because you are, I still think of you as a merchant in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, I mean, not the nicest way possible, but unfortunately, like for some things, it's like, sorry, yeah. Um, Understandable. Only, it's really because if I let one in, then I got to let them all in and then there's nothing special about a fratology event. <laughs> but I'm, you know, really I'm really intrigued to see how this goes. I mean, there's, there's some really smart things that you're doing. I th- I'm sure you're, you're going to learn a lot of lessons, you know, some the hard way, some the easy way. Um, But that's the only way you can do it. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for joining me. I think, is this your third visit on Fertology? I think third. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I think, um, you know, we'll all be interested to see where it leads and, um, what you learn along the way. And, um, I look forward to seeing you, uh, in Vegas at the end of March.
1: Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much.